You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie for Solidarity Breakfast here on your community radio, 3CR. We've got an interesting program this morning, if I do say so myself. I've, I'm featuring a uh, interview I did with uh, Susie Foster. She made a film called The Last Two Weeks at Longley. It's part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, which is now screening at Nova. Uh, it's online, but it's also got the uh, actual theatre. Um, and there's a lot of... Uh, uh, first uh, premieres, really, uh, premieres, especially amongst the Australian films. And uh, the last two weeks at Longley is a fascinating film. What it is is a documentary that uh, gives a personal window into the last two weeks of the life of Victorian artist Lee Stevenson. It's shot by her daughter, uh, Susie Foster, and uh, the conversation is quite a fascinating affair. It's going to be on next Saturday, so it gives you a bit of a lead up to being able to go along at 5.15 at the Nova, Saturday, 29th of July. Uh, uh, it's um, followed at the end. Well, they're a very creative family, in fact. we I'm going to play uh, Dominique Foster, the granddaughter's song Little Dreamer. It's a beautiful piece. Uh, As I said, that family has got the creative genes. Uh, We're going to follow that with uh, a chat with uh, Sharon O'Dell. She's part of the action group that's been trying to protect the Bulga Forest up near Taree. We uh, followed uh, what was going on there because uh, uh, there was a halt in the um, uh, campaign as the election in New South Wales uh, changed hands uh, to a Labor government, but there's fears that uh, they're going to uh, be logging in that area again and uh, going to be uh, threatening koalas, gliders uh, and other animals. Uh, Old growth forest, very... um, there's not a lot of old growth forests left in New South Wales and uh, it'd be interesting to find out uh, what's going on in that particular area and uh, what they feel might be going to happen. Is there any hope with a changing government? Uh, This is the week that was, follows, and then we're going to talk to Tash Wack from the... uh, uh, ASU, the Australian Services Union, uh, she's the Deputy Secretary uh, of Victoria, Tasmanian branch of the ASU. There is uh, actions going on, protected actions and uh, community rally coming up for the Darabin Council workers. Uh, they've been um, 
uh, trying to negotiate uh, an outcome for quite a while now and uh, they are saying, calling foul, that the uh, council is just not... uh, acting in good faith. So we're going to find out more about what that, what's going on there. Uh, but before we do, uh, some imp- unimportant announcement. Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. Join Past the Mic Media at Black Spark on Wednesday the 26th of July for a presentation about art, music and resistance since the February 2021 military coup of Myanmar. Featuring a statement and music from Chaw Chaw and Myanmar punk band The Rebel Riot, the photography of 2023 World Press Photo Award winner Mal Kam Wah, and a presentation and Q&A with Myanmar photographer Mako Nang. Tickets are on a sliding scale via Humanitix. As always, no one turned away. More details are available on the Black Spark event page. Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. 5.30pm, Wednesday the 26th of July at Black Spark. Hosted by Pastor Mike Media, a 3CR supporter. to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're featuring one of those films today, The Last Two Weeks at Longley, which is a film by Susie Foster. It's actually an incredibly compelling film, as I say when I have a chat with Susie, because, of course, it's uh, documenting the last two weeks of the life of her mother, uh, Victorian artist Lee Stevenson. It's shot in uh, Lee's home uh, in the Goulburn Valley. Uh, It's quite quite a, an amazing film and uh, the chat was really fascinating to me so here we go so the last two weeks at Longley is extremely compelling film of course it's all about your mother dying yes that's right um it was you know it's it's as personal as it could possibly get um but you know it really it really felt like a kind of quite a natural thing if 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 you can say that um, you know, I just, I really wanted to capture what was happening. And when I, the whole thing started when I had this conversation with my stepdad and I said, look, what, what's happening here is, is really extraordinary. We're getting palliative care from a town that's 20 minutes drive away um, as much as we want with a hospital bed. Um, these people are giving us just the most incredible support and we should get the word out, you know, a bit more. Uh, well, it's interesting you should say it like that because, yes, it's uh, the underlying message, of course, is to actually uh, tell people about um, palliative care in one's home, and that is an extremely big message, I'll have to say. 
But um, mm. I was really interested in a whole lot of things. Uh, first, let's go to the filmmaking, actually. I mean, I, I, yep. was, I was thinking about how, because, I mean, of course, my mother's died too, and I know that feeling. Mm. I know what this means. Um, yeah. But the thing about uh, filmmaking is that you uh, get to see it and then review it, if you know what I mean, and place yourself mm. into another space separate from the actual happening. Do, do you know what I mean? Because otherwise you wouldn't be a filmmaking mm. a filmmaker. No, that's right. That's right. Look, I've made I've made enough enough films and and a sort of community um, clips and all sorts of content through the years um, to know. You know, when I pick up the camera, I know what's good to capture and and what's not. And I'm so used to um, capturing the lives of people around me that it didn't feel weird to to switch on the camera in very intimate moments. And the most intimate ones are really um, with my stepdad and with my daughter when they're, you know, talking about their shock or their grief and, and um, you know, how they're impacted. Whereas mum, mum was simply dying and, and, um, and not, you know, for her, she wasn't, she was allowing me to film and I was really, really, you know, enjoyed filming her and sometimes actually the reviewing of the footage was quite a shock for me. That was where I, I got a bit of the shock a few times when I saw what I'd filmed and whereas at the time some things I hadn't noticed. Yeah, which yeah. Is weird to say. No. But um, look, it was, it was, you know, I'm still sort of processing in a way. I'm still processing what that film is. Yeah. So... Because um, it's so close to me, you know that. Yeah, right. It's quite remarkable. Your your mum, Lee Stevenson, who is a very fine artist, in fact. And um, Ooh, thank you. Yeah, I think so. And it's a tribute to that, but also the fact that she saw the world in a visual way as well. Uh, um, I was really taken by the the way you shot the space. I mean, it's so like an Arthur Streeton painting. It's got such clarity it's fantastic like the landscapes yes. and stuff it's so Arthur Streeted it's extraordinary yeah right thanks I hadn't I hadn't made that connection but I'll go off and, and have a look at Arthur Street and stuff again <laughs> I studied art too so so um you know yes no I'd, I'd like to I remember I remember the name of course well but yes it's, it's, that, it's that these fantastic uh, broad uh, horizontals and the tones yeah. of the landscape, and he was so fantastic at at that that it it sort of makes you giddy. And that landscape mm -hmm. is directly from that uh, space. I mean that I mean mm. that's taking away from uh, the um, the film uh, discussion, but it's not really because what you you do is really fascinating as a filmmaker. You're great with the cutaways. The cutaways are fantastic. Well, thank you. There's a lot, I mean, really, you see the house very thoroughly by the end of the film <laughs> because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of her life in there that, that um, you know, is interesting. And I really love, as a filmmaker, what, what is the fun, one of the really fun things to me is sitting down with an edit, even though it's about my mum dying, so it does sound a bit weird to talk about it being fun. But, um, but what is fun to me is where I find, you know, the cutaways that match into what we're talking about and the themes 
the themes that we're touching on, you know, in real life, once I'm editing, you know, I can clearly see those parallels and where where what we look at starts to, you know, take us sort of more deeply into into what we're hearing. Yeah, and that that's one of the most compelling things about it. I mean, your your family are so generous to allow us to be part of those last two weeks. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, look, my stepdad is, you know, it's quite extraordinary, really. I think because he, both of his parents had died, you know, quite a, a lot of years ago now, but they both died in hospital. And he, you know, when mum, when it was clear that mum was dying, I think, and he saw me filming, we had this discussion, I think he just made a decision you know, there and then that he wanted to help get that message out that there is a better way to do it. And, I, and when, I, when I say better, obviously it's not better in every circumstance, you know, and that every, everybody's death is going to be have different, different things happening around it. But, you know, if I can make a sort of, for certainly for us and for him, it was better. You know, it was a lot better. And, um, and it was what mum wanted you know more than anything so he you know he really is pretty extraordinary guy he he just you know took time off work luckily that was the lucky part was I was also in because I'm a teacher you know my my day job is um is teaching and and so I was on holidays um myself and and he took time off so the two of us could be there full time with mum and um and he was just so devoted to the job of caring for her. Um, it was really, it was pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it is pretty extraordinary. It only happens once, of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the uh, other thing that is extraordinary about the film is the introduction of your mother when she wasn't ill, which is lovely. Mm, yeah, she's such a she's such a classic, isn't she? <laughs> Yeah, she was. She was a um, remarkable person. And uh, it also, I mean, looking at it from an audience's point of view, because I didn't know your mother and I don't know your family, but um, you become very uh, involved, is, um, and but from a visual point of view, uh, the ravages of that illness was so stark. Yeah, that's the word. Mm. She was so different in her physicality once she got so ill. That's right. Yeah. Look, it, it's and that and that in itself is a really good um, thing for people to know because I didn't know that, and neither did she. And that is that sudden rapid weight loss is a reason to go to your doctor and get checked out. Um, she had sudden rapid weight loss the year before she died. And she, as Roger says in the film, you know, she thought, wow, look at me, I'm losing all this weight, yay. Um, but she, there was no reason why she was losing all that weight that she knew of and that we knew of. So um, she was just pleased and continued to stay away from her doctor. But what was happening was she had bowel cancer and it was affecting her appetite. The body apparently tries to sort of starve out a cancer when realises something is up. That's what somebody sort of very simplistically described it to me as. So that was happening, and um, and of course she 
you know, she sort of hit the mark, I guess, where she would have been happy to stop and then would have been rapidly, rapidly heading, you know, towards towards completely losing all all of her her um, weight and and muscle tone and everything. And sh- and as she says, you know, the poor poor woman. She says, um, you know, and I just fell down. It seems it seems mean. She says it seems mean, but I was just walking across the room and I fell down. And um, look, it takes. I think it takes a fair bit of denial as well to get to that stage, um, to have avoided a doctor for that long. And and that was the price that she paid um, for being, you know, a, a very stubborn person. <laughs> You know those pieces that have her going through her house and uh, showing us different parts of the flowers and all that. Yeah. A very knowledgeable person. Were you? Yeah. Um, how come you had that footage? Just as a matter of interest. So that was the first camera that I bought. So I started studying filmmaking when I was in my mid thirties. Yep. And um, bought a camera, and that was the first camera I owned. So when I went to visit her. I'm obviously a documentary filmmaker at heart because that's just <laughs> what I love doing is just is filming people in these candid moments and I can't I have no idea what sparked me filming her then but I was you know me and my my partner at the time were staying on her property down in that cottage I don't know if you noticed there's a sign down the bottom her property she called Longley her name's Lee and um she called the little cottage shortly yeah. So, <laughs> so we were we were staying down in Shortly and hadn't had walked up the hill and there we arrived and she comes out and and I'm filming her and so you know she's just straight off the bat she's into the hostess with the mostess mode and and that was what she was like every time actually which is what my daughter says at the beginning of the film you know she can just hear mum in her mind she can hear her going now Suze you know come and look at this and And she would do that with everybody that came to the house it would be like you know let me show you something and off she would go and um yeah you were just sort of an audience really for mum and she could she could do that for hours you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're having a chat with uh, Susie Foster about her film The Last Two Weeks at Longley. Uh, it uh, follows the last two weeks of her mother's dying, actually, uh, and it's going to be shown at the uh, Nova on the 29th of July at 515 it's part of uh, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. This is the last piece of this conversation. Well, it's fascinating for you as a daughter because, of course, it's hard to be the daughter of a person like that, really. It is. It can be very hard. (laughs) (laughs) Always the centre of the show. Um, Not that she means it, of course. Um, You know, and you always think about the good points, um, actually. Uh, I I mean, I had a very complicated mum, too. Yeah. At the beginning, your daughter is saying the things that she's saying, uh, but there was a, a font... Uh, a birdbath that was dedicated to someone who had died in 1971. So obviously your family has a very interesting relationship with death. Yeah, you could say that. Um, my mother's mother, that that um, that plaque that you see, well, you see that little statue and there's a plaque. Now, I can't, do I show the plaque? Yes, I think yeah, I Yeah, you do, that's right. Now, that's it says something about in memory of someone, 1971. 
That was the very last thing I did on the film was change the first shot. <laughs> that yeah, that right. didn't used to be there. But, um, yeah, I put that in and, and what that is is it's a plaque to her mother and her father. And her mother also was very anti-doctor. She had all of her, she had five girls and they were all born at home in around Victoria in, I think, uh, at, at Rosebud they lived for some time, Rodney Frankston. And they, all the girls were born at home except for my mum, who was, at, there was a difficult time with her birth and then she was a very sick baby. Um, and she was the second last one. But all the others in at home and my my aunt told me that, you know, that um, my grandmother, who I don't really remember, but she would do all, all the sort of, doctory stuff that you would normally go to a doctor for her mother would do you know she she just didn't she didn't believe in them so that came that was passed directly on to my mum um that attitude and you know in a way it's good because there's a lot of I think there's a lot of the time that we that we turn to doctors for things that that we don't really need to um but at the same time there's a balance there so um my my grandparents both died and when mum turned 50 she had all five sisters and you see you see a photograph of her four sisters in the film um on her 50th birthday and they planted they each planted a tree on the property for their parents who had died a a long time ago by that stage but but um but it was a, a tree planting ceremony and so and so when mum died, um, my son actually had the idea, who you see him in the film a little bit, but he doesn't speak um, um, to us. Um, we, he had the idea to plant a tree for mum. So the three of us, we each planted a tree for her as well. And that's the shots that you see at the end where we're planting those trees. And she didn't want a funeral, so there was no funeral. Um, we planted trees and, and she wanted to be cremated and that's the first that funny conversation here at the start. We're talking about maybe we can just do away with the with the burning but just make a big fire there at home and you know, <laughs> I'm like, And you mean burn you here at home? And she's like, No, no, no but, but obviously she was thinking Yeah, that. yeah. She was, I can imagine she would. <laughs> uh, I mean, I love it. You go, I think that's illegal. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's fascinating. Um, I mean, as to the thing about uh, uh, hospitals uh, or doctors, uh, when I was young, there was a general belief that if you went into the hospital, you were never going to come out. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. So, so I think that I might have been the same. Yeah, I think that might have been uh, where they were coming from. Uh, sort of a yes. bit somber, but anyway, um, coming we're coming to the end of our conversation. I, I found this a very interesting film and a very uh, interesting conversation to have. Uh, what would you say about the, the 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 messages that you want to get across to people? Because it's now going to be shown at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, and so uh, it's getting a very public airing. Mm, yes. Yeah, look, that, that, that's, like I said before, that was the whole reason that I made this feature doc was so that people could see somebody dying at home 
Um, a lot of people have never seen anything you know, like that, like what it can look like, which is what you see with mum, and that they also get that message that palliative care is available to you in Australia. It's available to you anywhere you live, and it's really terrifically good <coughs> care, and it's free. It's all provided under Medicare. I don't think we paid for anything. I don't know how many beds they have. It's the hospital bed that she had that is the real game changer for caring for somebody at home because obviously, you know, if you've ever had anything to do with with people when they're very sick, moving around is hard and that hospital bed just makes movement that much easier and also it's it's an air bed and it, it pumps up in, in different patches of the bed and means that the person doesn't get bed sores, which is a huge plus. You know, when, you, yeah. when you're trying to die at home, the last thing you want is, is painful sores on you. You know, you're already dealing with enough. So, you know, but I, I don't know how many hospital beds are available. Like if, if suddenly a hundredfold more people started saying, well, I'd like to die at home, if they could provide that. But Apparently, it's you know it's a real win-win for the, the health system when people decide <laughs> to die at home, because it's less it costs the state less mm. um, because you're not mm. there in hospital. If you've got a couple of people to look after you and they're dedicated, and you've got those nurses and carers that come who were amazing, you know I hope that comes through in the film. They just they were su- such caring, lovely people just doing their job but doing it you know and it just helped us so much to feel um like things were you know on track and not unusually you know just gave us gave us ideas of what we should expect um because no i didn't have any experience really with being somebody when they were dying roger had a bit more than me so um you know it it i was just blown away i thought does everybody know that this is a possibility? Because <laughs> I didn't. The other thing too is that it's a long goodbye. You get to actually say goodbye. You also get to be give. You get. I mean, it's a very human mm. film. Like you get to give, and that's really important. That's right. Yeah, it's really you, you right. thoroughly in, investigate the human condition in this film. It's at a very, very pivotal moment. That's right, and it feels good to be able to give. It felt really good to me to be able to, to give that to mum because she so clearly wanted it. You know, she demanded to be taken home as much as she possibly could. And that made it easy for us because there was no wondering, you know, there's no sitting around, I wonder if mum would rather be at home. <laughs> you know, she definitely wanted to be there. And then to be able to give her that and... Um, to be able to spend that unbroken time. I, I think I, I spent nine weeks all up with her and came and went twice, but the last period of time was, was probably, you know, seven weeks or something. Um, and it was just so, it felt so good on some level to be able to nurse her out like that. Um, and, you know, I spent time with her that was completely unlike any other time because she was so vulnerable. It just totally changes, you know, the, any dynamic that I had where I, you know, where I was annoyed with her for being, you know, sort of, sort of too self-centered or that big personality sort of stuff was totally gone. 
yeah. you know, it just didn't didn't happen anymore. So I was more available, um, and and yeah, I'm I just felt really really grateful. And the thing I didn't put this in the film in the end. I did have a line where I say this, but I felt like it was sort of trying to be preachy. But the thing is, it really does feel like a privilege, you know, to to do that. So I would hope that lots more, lots of people get that. And I think everyone who has had that experience, or certainly a lot of people since I, I made the film, or since she died, um, a lot of people have said to me exactly that, that it felt like it was a privilege to be able to be there for someone. And that was my conversation with uh, filmmaker Susie Foster the last two weeks at Longley. It's going to be showing at uh, the Nova the 29th of July, Saturday, 5.15pm, as part of the uh, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. And this is a song by uh, Lee Stevenson's granddaughter, uh, Dominie Foster, who is a singer-songwriter. Only exists in your 
dreams you cannot take them home when you with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and that was Dominique Foster's Little Dreamer. Beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, we've got uh, Sharon O'Dell on the phone. G'day Sharon, how are you? Good morning Anna. Well, thank you. Yeah, and you're from Save Bulga Forest. Now earlier, before the uh, New South Wales election, we were following what was happening in the Bulga Forest because Save Bulga Forest was uh, you know, a very important uh, thing going on uh, near Tari, uh, and you must have thought that there was a possibility that uh, there was going to the forest, the old growth forest, was going to be preserved with the change of government. Well, we we were hopeful that with the election and a new government, you know, things might uh, go in that direction, but since. Since the uh, the new government's taken over, there hasn't been anything said about protecting native forests and forestry corp are going hell for leather. Uh, so, unfortunately, at this stage, there's uh, there's nothing in, in you know in sight. But uh, we've been very focused since the election on citizen science. Um, we've had an ecologist come out with us into the forest and we've been out a few times now looking for koalas and and we know they're in there (laughs) and we know they're breeding um, because we've seen different sized scats. Uh, We saw a young koala in a tree Um, but we've also seen greater gliders Uh, so you know it's a thrill to see a greater glider Um, and we think that, you know, with the amount that we, we saw, we were, we were quite surprised to see so many that we think maybe now that this is a stronghold for the greater glider. Uh, so, you know, even more important to defend and protect the Bulga forest. Because um, yeah, there's, there's a um, similarity, isn't there? I hadn't realised that there's a similarity in the, for the koalas and the greater gliders uh, in the way they they graze. Well, they yes, they both um, have a diet exclusively of of eucalypt, um, tallow wood, and grey gum, sort of being their preferred. But yes, they they have a very similar um, sort of eating. They they come out of a night. They're quite slow in the forest. They're very selective. And so, you know, the, the gliders are just the most beautiful things. They're about the size of a cat uh, with an enormously long tail. Wow. Um, and they can be black or white or a combination of both and the cutest pink ears. And we were out uh, not so long ago uh, in the forest spotlighting and doing some surveying and uh, their little eyes just shining out. We were just blown away with the amount we saw. Uh, so, you know, we're going out again very soon to do some more surveying and 
hopefully with the evidence that we're able to um, collect, it will be, you know, an even stronger case to save this beautiful forest. Well, one we, of the things that uh, you pointed out is that the government actually doesn't take much time collecting this data. Well, that's the thing. We, we don't have any idea even on the numbers of, of these endangered species in the forest. Um, that's exactly right. <laughs> they don't really... Um, I don't think they really want to know yeah. what, what's uh, out there. Yeah, exactly. That that's uh, that's why citizen science is so important. And uh, I don't know if you know, and I don't know if it's happening in New South Wales, but in Victoria they just passed legislation that uh, is specifically designed to criminalise uh, citizen scientists or people going into uh, coops, which is pretty disturbing, really. Oh, absolutely. You just cut out on the last couple oh, of words. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was, uh, the horrifying thought, oh, you've gone, you've disappeared. It yeah. has happened before. Um, yeah. But anyway, they, uh, I um, was very interested in the fact that the Forestry Corporation, is in, uh, which is a government-run uh, business, is uh, non-transparent. And in fact, the uh, Save Bulga Forest have become incredibly attuned to watching the signs used Using the websites to fathom what it is that they intend to do. Well, yes, that's we do have some very um, diligent watchers to see what's going on, and we've just just sort of in the last week um, saw that the forest out here has been closed, and it's closed from July through till next January. Oh my God! Yes, yeah, so that was really alarming to us. Um, and we've, you know, rallied together again and uh, having lots of meetings and working out, you know, what, what we can do going forward now. And um, we have, you know, we have a, a, a lot of things um, in the pipeline. We, we just, you know, all holes are barred now. We just need to protect and defend this forest. And so many people that live in this community and also, you know, that come come up here are very passionate about defending the forest. Um, so who knows? <laughs> so, well, you've written to the New South Wales Minister for Environment and Forestry. Uh, what was in the letter and what uh, are you expecting from them? Well, um, we haven't heard anything back, but we're all, you know, I actually didn't write that letter, so I can't tell you exactly what was in it. Um, but all, always as a, you know, a call to stop native forest logging until we can get more of an idea of the numbers of the endangered species, where they are, you know, to protect certain places. Uh, the old growth forest that in, in the Bulga forest, it does have some old growth trees. And, you know, we need to identify and keep as many of the old growth of course, as we can. Um, it takes you know, nearly 100 years to get the, the hollows needed. And the gliders actually need um, the old growth and the trees as well for their flight paths, not just for their, for their food source, but for their flight paths. Um, that's something, you know, that hasn't been you know, really talked about before. Um, yeah, so we're, we're just hoping that they can see sense and that sooner rather than later, 
Um, we stopped native forest logging. So, Sharon, uh, you're specifically focused on uh, the Bogger Forest near Taree, but do you have a perspective on what's going on in New South Wales in general in this area? Well, all up and down the east coast, from you know Irimba right up um, to northern New South Wales, the uh, there's several forests around here: the Lawn State Forest, the Yarrett State Forest. They're all being smashed. We go out, you know, regularly, and it's heartbreaking to see, you know, what they can do in a day now. So every day that we can halt the logging and stop it in an area, that's a win um, because the devastation that can happen in one day even is terrible. Um, and it's, that, as I said, you know, Forestry Corps seem to be just going gangbusters while they can. And we have people, you know, sort of trying to protect and defend the forest everywhere, um, but it doesn't seem to be doing, you know, for now, it, it doesn't seem to be changing much. They're not listening. Um, and I was, because you're on the ground and you actually go out into the forest and so it's an ever-present and uh, very disturbing uh, feeling to feel that uh, the natural world around you is being decimated. Um, but uh, are there conversations going on and uh, coalitions going being built between people who live in the city and where you are? Um, look, not in the... I, I would say in the city it doesn't seem to be as... People don't know, you know, it's such a, a hidden thing and I don't think the people in, in cities necessarily have an understanding of just how important and, um, you know, sort of almost to the point that the, there's hardly any forest, large forest stands left anywhere in the world or in Australia. Um, Definitely other people in the communities up and down the coast that, is, that can see it for themselves. Um, you know, we support them, they support us. We, we try to, to help where, they, where we can. They come down here sometimes to help. But, yeah, it's sort of, um, sort of preaching to the converted in some ways that all the people that, that are on the ground are the ones that know what's happening. Um, it's hard to get that word out. Yeah, I understand. Uh, and the other thing that's interesting to me is the fact that uh, despite the fact that people in the city don't appear to be aware, um, the, de the destruction of these forests are uh, terrible for the animals and uh, the trees, etc. But of course, humans are affected too in the sense that it has an effect on the catchment areas of of their drinking water and uh, a whole range of other things. It just seems... Uh, 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 and I know that uh, in Victoria, the um, uh, Vic Forest is a, is a loss-running concern uh, and has been for a long time. It's propped up by public money. Is that the same for Forestry Corporation? Is it a um, loss-running business? Sorry, I just missed that. Is it a loss-running business? Is it being oh, propped definitely. up by public oh, money? Definitely. Oh yes, yes, definitely is. It's uh, it's very it's a known fact that that they're being propped up by with public money. So it doesn't make sense, you know, in in any way, shape, or form. And I think that's so frustrating because, you know, for example, this 
this is just um, you know, recently uh, I went to a land care meeting um, and we were told there were buckets of money to help landholders like me to plant corridors of vegetation across our properties for the koalas to use. And you know, these seedlings will take probably 20 years before they're much good to a koala. But the same government is knocking over hundreds of thousands of fully grown koala feed trees right across the region. So, you know, surely it would make more sense to use the money to save the trees that are already grown than to just chop them all down and then start afresh. You know, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, we had a a very severe drought here um, and there's another hot, dry summer coming if the Northern Hemisphere is anything to go by. Um, So even planting new trees, the conditions aren't at all good, you know, for seedlings, if they even do make it into saplings. Uh, it's still a very long time off, and you know, just that that fact is is insane. Um, you know, on one hand, they're cutting them down; on the other hand, they're they're giving out grants to to replant. It's you know, and a forest is is so much more than just planting saplings. You know, the the biodiversity of the forests take hundreds of years. So, yes, it's it's mind-boggling, really, isn't it? Oh, it is. One hand doesn't know what the other hand's doing. Mm. Uh, it sounds like a um, great uh, society we live in. <laughs> oh. um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I, I guess that, say, Bulga Forest is going to, I mean, you sat down for a while, but you're all rising up again. Yes. Yep. We, we will do whatever it takes. We've come this far. Uh, we did manage to get, you know, the to save quite a, a lot of the forest earlier um, this year when our campaign was in full swing. They packed up and left our forest, which was wonderful. We, you know, we we sort of knew that they'd be back. That wasn't the end of it. But up until now, it's been very quiet in the forest, but we've seen forestry cars around and just the fact that the forest is closed um, pretty much indicates to us that they're, you know, going to resume logging any time now. So we will do whatever it takes. I think we're, we're more determined than ever and, and people are willing to do things they would normally never have thought themselves doing. Like I, I myself was arrested earlier in the year and yeah, uh, there's a lot of people that, that think when you, you live here or even not live here but just come and visit this forest and see how absolutely beautiful it is, it's, um, you, we can't let it just go. So, uh, yeah, and so if you wanted takes. supporters, supporters, uh, you, you uh, are online? Yes, if anyone does want to support us, we, we do have the um, Save Bulga Forest website. And there's a Facebook site, Save Bulga Forest. And look, if anybody you know, wants to write a letter to the New South Wales Premier, Chris Minns, asking him to protect the forest, just simply, you know, telling him how wrong it is to please protect the greater gliders and koalas. We've, we've sent hundreds of letters, but it would be great for him to be swamped with letters. That's sort of that's as much as we can do with the pen and paper, and then 
what we can do with, um, you know, people on the ground out here. Well, hopefully we can keep them at bay for just a bit longer. We feel like, you know, there's got to be some sort of change coming soon. So we're just trying to, you know, keep the beast at bay for as long as we can until sense prevails and laws are changed. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Sharon. Great. Bye for now.
Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. A week's solidarity bricky team listener when unemployment figures showed just how selfish true blue Aussie workers are. Unemployment dropped. A proletariat slap in the face for soon-to-be new reserve losses bank supremo Michelle Bulldust, who, unlike those workers, puts the national interest first knows the delicate flower that is the economy needs thousands more people out of work. 140,000 more people out of work. Knows less people heading for the dollop as is setting the delicate flower back dangerously. Uh, so are you setting the example, Michelle, heading for the Centrelink queue yourself or Services True Blue Aussie or whatever it's now called? What a silly question that the economy needs me to create the environment ensuring more people are out of work. Uh, so what will you do to make life easier for those people, those families? We will increase interest rates. Uh, but, but, but that'll mean they'll have to pay heaps more with, with heaps less. Are you suggesting workers, or, or non-workers in this case, <laughs> no, seriously, should not share in contributing to the greatest little economic order of them all? After all, it's their own fault for not being unemployed. If, if they refuse, they would become second in my areas of disgust. Uh, what's first? Dole budgets. So... The week that was recommends we show our patriotic concern, our patriotic true blue Aussie spirit, no, more so, our patriotic duty, give up our jobs and do our bit for the country. Uh, but I won't be able to survive. The, the cost of living is soaring. Food, utilities, a roof over our heads, we'll, we'll end up in the gutter. Stop being selfish. Self, self, self. Don't you care about the economy? Workers are so selfish, aren't they? Summed up P1 headline in yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. Markets tip rise at Bulldust's first RBA meeting. Record low jobless jobs fuels rates bet. Showing workers are their own worst enemy, wanting a job. I'm sure we've noticed that all the highly paid experts who tell us we all need to be unemployed for the good of the economy and therefore the country haven't given up their own sinecures, or sorry, their own jobs. Another Freudian, by the way, true, when I checked this, I'd typed God of the economy, probably more appropriate, on which the experts who advise us about these things, Socialist Finance Minister Katie Gallagher, asked this week to comment on some economic issues, said, I'll leave that to the people who know about these things. And I thought, but hang on, she's the finance minister. Maybe that's fingered the problem, of course, leaving it to the great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all to tell the government what to do, given its orders. Caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, warned he would not have supported the appointment of a tainted candidate like the Treasury Secretary. You know, like a socialist puppet-like. Uh, but Pete... Pete, he was appointed by your former big economic guru, Josh Friday Icebergs. Was, was Josh a closet-tainted socialist puppet? That's a, you know, like, defamatory slur on a great big economic guru, like. No, you know, he became a tainted, like, you know, socialist puppet when the people got the, the you know, election hopelessly, like, wrong. 
On the other hand, we have to praise Pete for getting something right. Well, he's always right as right can be, but in this case, correct right. Celebrating a by-election win in a safer-than-safe blue-ribbon conservative seat, Pete said the results showed the socialist economic experiment is failing true blue Aussies like... The socialist energy experiment is failing true blue Aussies, like you know. And in fairness, we have to agree with him, although it's also fair to say for polar opposite reasons. On energy, Pete clearly wants a return to experimenting with doing absolutely nothing. Well, nothing to change the fossil status quo. Threats, though, to the caring business class status quo. Caring employers are concerned the socialist plans to increase evil union right of entry powers to check whether caring employers are caring could lead to evil union officials entering our family homes, our sacred domain. Well, the homes of families running businesses from home. This is a blatant attack on our right to exploit workers in our own homes. The caring business class expressed its righteous disgust. Okay, okay, the caring business class relations minister Tony Bark-Worstan says the claim is utterly ridiculous. The legislation hasn't even been written yet, but hell, the caring employers know better safe than sorry. Let the socialists know when they're threatening their, the caring employers, basic rights. The Pot Calling the Kettle Award of the Week, a runaway win for shadow big economic guru Angus Tailings, who accused big supremo Anthony Albinguzi of misleading claims about the voice proposal. Let's repeat that. A leading denied terrenalius non-land, non-people, are people, no campaigner, accuses the yes campaign of misleading claims. Angus, I notice one no pamphlet says the voice will allow terrenalius non-land, non-people to tax us on top of government taxes. Exactly. This reflects the total lack of detail in the proposal. The government has refused to provide us with the detail that terrenalius non-land, non-people will be able to hit us with a voice tax. Uh, so, so what are the misleading claims? It's a disgrace. They won't tell us. That's why we want more detail on the misleading claims. They won't tell us. Uh, thank you, Angus. Oh, and here's your pot calling the kettle award. Congratulations. Thank you. A pleasure. It's an honour. But the big honour of the week, gold, 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 to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin for extracting every ounce of gold out of State Supremo, the pejorative Dan, cancelling the His Most Gracious Majesty's Games, pointing out over a few hundred pages, well, slight exaggeration, hyperbole, pages, just how evil is the pejorative D, and why, oh, why did the electorate ignore Lord Rupert's advice in the past three elections? robbing True Blue Aussie of the chance to beat up on the victims of His Most Gracious Majesty's Lot's empirical robbery. Speaking of, sure we'd agree, bit of a mistake standing down former robo-debt number one bureaucrat Catherine Campbell out from her new role in charge of the Forkus $38 million a day nuclear train killers deal. After all, if she could stop up the lives of thousands and thousands of the poorest of the poor, 
with a little help from friends like former big supremo Scummo and Stewart and Christian and Allen, there's every chance she could make one hell of a mess, fork forkers so to speak, and save us that 38 mil a day, although it might then be wasted on insignificant incidentals like public housing, transport, education, health, even, dare we say it, make the poorest of the poor a little less poorest of although that, that would encourage them to be even more slothful. And there could be more to spend, of course, because the 38 mil a day doesn't count the cost of dealing with the nuclear waste. But then there's no need to allow for that, because like our Forkers partners, we've got absolutely no idea what to do with it anyway. Not that it matters. Technology will have a few thousand years to come up with a solution. E except... Climate change, if there is such a thing, won't allow it thousands of years. But, but on a positive note, they'll solve each other. Two for the 38 million a day price of one. Especially, and any wonder Angus said, Al, no, we must vote no. Especially when the upstart, terrenulius, non-land, non-people challenge our right to dump nuclear waste in their backyard. Kimber in South Trublowasi, in this case, take our government to court and, and win. Who do they think they are? They just can't get it through their heads that terra nullius non land means terra nullius non land. Back to Lord Rupert, knowing the electorate keeps getting elections wrong, Pity wishes he could adopt the tie system where the generals can reject the leader chosen by the people and now threaten to jail him, leaving the generals still in charge and showing the great value of democracy. If only, Lord Rupert must ponder, we had a post-election upper house stacked with Lord Rupert stooges to right the people's wrong. On one level, he's not totally wrong, because whoever gets elected, usually, we don't want anyway. Finally, on top of that decision on the Kimber no longer nuclear waste dumping site, it's becoming apparent the courts are getting out of control. A good corporate citizen, United Lifts, became a little less united by sacking or, sorry, sadly having to let go, two evil union delegates just after they became evil. Her Honour declaring, how's this for the courts getting out of control? The court is satisfied that the termination within one month of them agreeing to become union delegates sent a clear message to other employees that engaging with the unions and pressing workplace rights was likely to result in serious consequences in terms of continued employment. Caring employers, the Troubler Aussie Industry Profits Group, our old bait in us will cost the workers, and the Troubler Aussie Resources and Energy Caring Employers Profits Association, quote, voiced concerns about giving special treatment to union delegates. Showing what a danger or honour is. Well, for giving special treatment, United Lifts was 120 grand worse off, forcing it presumably to hit the emergency button. Good morning. Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. Join Past the Mic Media at Black Spark on Wednesday the 26th of July for a presentation about art, music and resistance since the February 2021 military coup of Myanmar. Featuring a statement and music from Chaw Chaw and Myanmar punk band The Rebel Riot, the photography of 2023 World Press Photo Award winner Mal Kam Wah, 
and a presentation and Q&A with Myanmar photographer Mako Nang. Tickets are on a sliding scale via Humanitix. As always, no one turned away. More details are available on the Black Spark event page. Focus on Myanmar. Art, music and resistance. 5.30pm, Wednesday the 26th of July at Black Spark. Hosted by Pastor Mike Media, a 3CR supporter. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 A 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, as I promised, we're going to speak to somebody about what's going on at Darabin Council for Workers. G'day. How are you, Tash? Good morning, Annie. I'm great. How are you? Good. And uh, you're the Deputy Secretary of the Australian Services Union, Vic Taz, and uh, you're in the thick of it at uh, Darabin Council. Can you tell us what's going on for the workers? Sure, thanks. Um, Look, we've been bargaining for quite a long time there. So we started negotiations back in September. Um, We've had three stop works now because the offer that council has put on the table is really not cutting it for our members. Um, And unfortunately, what we're finding is that um, council is also reneging on claims that they'd previously agreed to, including some of their own claims, which is a little bit unusual. Um, so pay is a really big issue, but there's also some of your kind of real bread and butter clauses in there that um, you know are really important for an enterprise agreement to have right, like dispute resolution, um, that you know we cannot reach agreement on. Can you tell me, because a council covers a lot of workers and the ASU cover a lot of workers, uh, what uh, what workers are we talking about? Yeah, good question. Um, and I should say that this action is all being done in tandem with the ANMF. So they have um, nurses in maternal child health and immunisation. So this also includes all of them. Our members stretch across every other part of council. So we've got everyone from waste, construction, fleet mechanics, parks and gardens, all of the outdoor kind of worker coverage through to you know, people who are performing community support work, working with older people in the community, doing home care, all of the backup jobs that exist behind that. So, you know, roster clerks, support workers, that kind of stuff. Libraries, so libraries have really stepped up action. Um, customer service, so the people that take people's rates, answer the phone when people have got questions. Local laws and traffic enforcement, so the people that come and deal with, you know, the barking dogs, the abandoned cars, um, through the people you know, like who are doing, you know, finance, governance, planning roles. Like it's pretty much everyone across council. Yeah, and I feel like I'm always going to miss someone out when I leave. Yeah, yeah, like that, it's such a yeah. Network. That's why I asked because this is the yeah. um, absolute uh, backbone of a local a local community, and so the council uh, we're talking about the business side of the council is. Uh, you said that they actually withdrew some of their own claims. What's that all about? Um, so, I mean, they're saying that um, that their financial situation has changed since the start of bargaining. So, I mean, there's some claims that they've withdrawn fairly overtly and obviously and, you know, given some explanation for it, whether we agree with it or not. There's been 
you know, a kind of explanation of we are withdrawing this and this is what is happening and this is why. So there was a cluster of claims originally that they had on the table that were um, additional forms of leave. Um, so leave for people who have grandparent responsibilities or elder care responsibilities um, or experiencing mental health and have exhausted a whole bunch of their leave. So they withdrew that kind of package off the table fairly mm. early. Uh, or probably, sorry, I should say about January. So, you know, it had been some months. Um, yeah, and then what we've kind of noticed since then is that, you know, at the moment, like, negotiations have broken down quite a bit. We're still exchanging drafts and other things over email. Is it we'll get a draft and it will just have things taken out of it. So, for instance, they had a claim to um, increase the amount of personal leave that can be transferred to another um, local authority. So if a council worker moves to another council, there's a clause in that agreement that says that up to 20 days of their personal leave can be, you know, transferred over because yep. it's all the same industry, blah, blah, blah. So they had offered to increase that to 40 days and they just, you know, kind of passed it off as a, an admin error, which is not true, um, and just taken that out of the agreement. There's a couple of other things that they've done that with as well, uh, which is really frustrating. It's really difficult when you're in a negotiation environment where people are pissed off already and then you're having to go back to them and say, well, they want you to narrow down your list of issues, but, hey, they've just taken this off the table with a pretty bullshit kind of explanation. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, pay is is a big issue, that's what you're saying? Yes, that is one of the big unresolved issues, yeah. Now, is that because the increments, uh, that what, what are they offering or not offering? Yeah, so they did an unusual thing and paid people, um, so their last, um, agreement actually expired on the 30th of June 2022. Mm. Um, they did the unusual thing because we started bargaining a bit late for a whole range of other reasons that I won't get into. But um, So they did the unusual thing of just paying people um, an increase, um, which was 2% or $30 a week. But that was outside of any kind of negotiation. And obviously the cost of living has really put a lot of pressure on members. Um, you know, people like did not get any kind of say about what that... Um, increase was going to be. So they have a claim on the table still for that period of 3% or $45 a week. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that's the first big kind of difference. Um, we're far closer in the second year. Um, it's only like a difference of 0.5% um, uh, for the second year of in our position. So that's 3% um, or 3.5%. And then the $45 a week has been agreed. Um, and in the final year, we're still, you know, too far apart, unfortunately. So it's um, quite a complicated offer that council has put forward. Um, so I might just sort of leave it as that it's a similar kind of thing to the yep. 2% or $35, whereas yep. our members are seeking 32 or 45 which in this environment, 3.2%, you know, like that's a bit of a rough, what they feel like that's a pretty big rough kind of yeah. Um, that, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, compromise to cop as it is. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And the other other issue is overwork. Yes, that's right. So one of the other really big issues is there has been that um, it's been quite a revolving door. At Darabin, there's been a lot of staff leaving. Um, there's a high number of vacancies and we have tic-tacs backwards and forwards about a clause that picks up on things like workload management, replacements of vacancies and dealing with absences. That one has moved along a bit and I think, you know, like we're almost there with that one now. Um, but it's, you know, it's been of high consenting members just because they are left short-staffed um, so frequently. Yeah, right. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, the other thing is um, uh, 
why is there so much bad blood? Well, I mean, because I, I know what I was going to say. I was going to ask, um, <coughs> excuse me, there is uh, a lot of concern in council areas uh, about uh, the um, support services being outsourced. And um, I don't know if that's something that's a problem at Darabin, but is the changed financial situation and the bad blood related to some outcome that the council wants that uh, they're not saying? I know that sounds a bit clairvoyant. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good question. And obviously, they probably, compared to a lot of councils, do have a lot of service in-house still. So there's little sections that have been... um, So, for instance, the the yellow bins that you see down High Street and other kind of main areas, they are already contracted out. Like, they pick up the public waste bins and a contractor does that. But pretty much in most other areas of council, like it is directly employed council workers, which is what, obviously, we see as a really important employment model to be retained. So that hasn't been overtly said, whether that is part of it, you know, if they're planning that, they haven't said that, and certainly we would be pushing that very hard, and I think the community would be really on board with that, and particularly in a place like Darabin, um, if there is any kind of attempts to outsource sections of um, service. Okay, yeah, yeah. and the... uh what is the financial ch- ch- changes that they're saying has happened? Largely, what they're putting it down to is um, an increase in cost around um, capital expenditure. Um, I, I'm not going to pretend to be fully across all of their finances. Like It's quite a detailed 300-odd page document that gets put out annually. Mm. Um, but it's the increase in cost around some of those sorts of things. They've got to do a massive IT project um, they say, and that is a $35 million cost. Um, there's some other capital expenditure that they've said that they're pulling back on. Um, I mean, that's kind of the explanation that we've been given. Um, so I don't know, like I, yeah, I wouldn't... No, no, it's, a, it, it's interesting that um, yeah. they want to do something, but it's workers paying conditions that have to be assaulted in order to get it. That is right, and that's certainly how our members feel, is because whilst I think there are some projects, like future projects that have been pulled back on, you know, they still look around their municipality and see really big things going on still, and, you know, people really question that, and rightly so. Or, you know, like, that they have kept communities afloat during really difficult periods, you know, look at the pandemic and all of that, Um like, why isn't there that that kind of investment back in them? And they are often the most stable people in a council is the workers on the ground doing the frontline jobs. And that is particularly true of a place like Darabin where we've seen um, a lot of senior leaders leave. We've had an HR department turnover entirely in the course of bargaining. So um, <laughs> I think the people that we started with, there's nobody left there's one person who was there for maybe like a couple of months, like in or something. Wow. Like it's, it's quite off the chart sort of stuff. So, I mean, it isn't uncommon to some degree in some councils, but it is definitely a more extreme version at Darabin. And it's not, I don't think it's helping the process in terms of coming back to your question about why the bad blood. I think some of it is just that that management of that kind of stuff is really difficult when it's fractured like that. But again, it is workers bearing the brunt of that and having to re-prosecute arguments and that sort of thing that, you know, just should have been left alone. Well, that's fascinating because, I mean, I have had word that um, 
HR, uh, uh, employees in HR are at a premium at the moment and obviously mm. the ones who are at Darabin found uh, finer, you know, greener pastures. Uh, but to try and negotiate in that kind of condition is really difficult, I, I imagine. It is because we had things that we thought were very better down with one of the people that we started the process with um, and, you know, yeah, that has not carried through in terms of consistency. And I don't even mean like, you know, the big ticket items where um, that we mentioned earlier. It's not that sort of stuff. It's like, you know, the basics, but it's sort of really time-consuming stuff. But again, it's really difficult coming back to workers and saying, well, you should cop this because they just happen to have a different person at the table um, because, yeah, like we just need to get this, we're getting to a point of like we need to get this done and you can't keep talking about the same things over and over, but it's really not okay. <laughs> wow, yeah. it, that's really um, terrible for you people. I mean, it's uh, it's a, a long time, the 30th of June uh, 2022 to now. It's actually a long that's time. Right. It, it really is. And obviously, you know, the concern that... Um, we imagine now that people are having is that what's well, the 22nd of July today, people were due another pay rise um, and, you know, we've got people who are doing it hard. Um, you know, what happens then is like, you know, I think council is trying to wear them down and that's not okay. No, it's not okay. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, what happened on Friday? Because there was a meeting. So, yeah, we had a third stop work with members. Um, we did this one jointly with the ANMF. Um, which was great. So members came together from both unions um, and have endorsed a couple of kind of steps going forward. So members have endorsed um, continuing to fight on, which is great. Um, There's no backing down there. Um, They have endorsed um, a rally that we're going to hold out the front of um, the council meeting that is this Monday night at five. Um, So I'll pass on the details to that if that's all right, Annie. Yep. and a couple of other steps which, you know, like we'll be looking at just to kind of, I guess, make some of what's been happening there a bit more public. So some of this has been very under the radar and I think that's kind of suited council, you know, like they've tried to keep some of this very quiet, which again is quite different for what we see in lots of other councils when there's industrial action going on. And we've had a real step up of industrial action um, across local government over the last, you know, 18 months or so and, you know, largely pushing back against, like, crappy wage offers and that kind of thing. Um, uh, but, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought then for a second. Yeah, but sorry. It, 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 <laughs> uh, but they're not going to step down. They're not going to... No, they're not. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so there's a number of other things that we want to do to try and, like, make this a bit more visible publicly. Um, like, we think that the community does care about these things. Ratepayers should care about these things in terms of where their money's going. But it is other members of the community that end up bearing the brunt of this stuff as well when, you know, services are disrupted and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, that is... It's, uh, well, it's the front line of service, um, the council, and what's going on there and running an efficient operation that uh, services the people in the in the community is uh, really important. And uh, as you say, uh, it's a broad range of people that are affected the uh you know the the nurses and the uh support staff and the librarians and the people at the depots and all those kind and the maintenance workers all of them uh i mean they're all up in arms uh what's the difference between um what the council councillors know and what the business side of council knows 
Uh, look, we've written to councillors. We're going to be doing that again and we've got some questions that are lined up um, or we will be lining up for the council meeting on Monday. Um, unfortunately, none of them responded to the last letter that we sent. So we put something in around um, when council was doing their budget process um, and they, they have to do a community engagement um, you know, work around that. So we put something in on behalf of our members saying, you know, these are some of the concerns that we had and are they aware of things like you know, contractors being used as scab labour and that kind of stuff. Um, unfortunately, none of them responded, so um, it's a little bit hard to tell, to be honest. So, yeah, we'll be contacting them again and um, we'll be attending on Monday. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're going to so, have to be answered. Yeah, so that, that's Monday, July the 24th, and it's at 5pm and it's at the um, Preston Civic Centre, Preston Town Hall, 274 Gower Street. They're getting a lot of um, attention when you consider um, what's going on in general to uh, council workers across. Uh, yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah, that's right. And look, and it's a very public location. You get a lot of people going by in that spot. Um, the last two stop works before Friday was held there. There's a lot of public visibility, a lot of public support when we go and do stuff out there. So, and yeah, so we really people. welcome people. Yeah, please come along. Please come along. If you're a resident, you can lodge a question before 12 p.m. If you jump on council's website, um, you can jump on there, lodge a question up to three questions per person. Um, well, actually, anyone, any member of the public can. Um, so, yeah, if you have concerns about what's going on, like please jump on there and do that. Um, and I believe it will be a hybrid meeting. So if people can't attend in person, um, there is a way to attend online. Um, and I think we've got some details in that flyer that you might have about um, who to talk to about that. Cool. Okay. Thank you very much, Tash, for this update. Thank you very much for sharing this story, Annie. It's really important and, um, yeah, we're really backing members in there and um, hope we can report a success down the track or, you know, some kind of resolution for everybody. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Uh, yeah, that was uh, Tash Wack, Wack, Deputy Secretary Australia Services Union, Victoria, Tasmania, and we're t they're talking about uh, what's happening in um, Darabin Council and the workers are cross. Come all good people and gather round Let me tell you how it all went down When a bunch of libertarians came to town To build their own utopia they had a certain certainty Doubt never bothered them, no siree They lived on logic and liberty In the green hills of New Hampshire Live free or die trying You might get eaten by a mountain lion This old world is gonna leave you crying So live free or try to live of the situation Banned all the rules and regulations There will be no more taxation In their vision of utopia So no one came to mend the roads Street lights faded and the library closed And when the garbage overflowed Bears came sniffing round 
next thing folks started losing their cats Nothing in the garden but a fresh pair of scat There's a certain logic in acting like that When you're top of the food chain To this affair If you leave everything till they say fair You may have to wrestle with a bear In the back streets of utopia Cause freedom can look like something else A place where everybody has to fend for themselves Or pretty words trying to cover the smell Of the stale stench of indifference Living on logic sounds real good People never act the way you think that they should Bears don't always shit in the wood And freedom doesn't come for free Doesn't come for free Living on logic sounds real good But people never act the way you think that they should Bears don't always shit in the wood And freedom doesn't come Billy Bragg's not sounding like Billy Bragg. Uh, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. And uh, we uh, talked to Susie Foster last two weeks at Longley, part of Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. That's on next week, Saturday, the 29th of July, Saturday, uh, 5.15. Um, Bulga Forest, new logging plant, question mark. They're fighting a battle. Uh, we spoke to Sharon O'Dell. Uh, this is the week that was, and we finished off with a chat with uh, Tash Kwak about uh, what's going on at Darabin Council and why there is a community action going on on Monday at the uh, council uh, meeting at the T- Preston Town Hall. Um, so go along. It uh, starts at... Where is it? Where does it start? Oh, where are my bit of papers? Uh, 5 p.m. 7:30. It goes to 7:30 p.m. and it's Preston Civic Centre, 274 Gower Street, Preston, Victoria. But today there is a uh, refugee rally on the state uh, library steps. Uh, Ten years is too long. A permanent visas for all now. Uh, there's going to be a, a range of speakers. Uncle Ringo Terek, Farah Bindish. Pahatha uh, Kumave from the uh, Australian Nurses and Midwifery Foundation uh, on a bridging visa. Uh, Rita Aruruban, mother of Vixan, a refugee detained in Mitre and threatened with deportation, followed by Senator Janet Rice. Also, if you're interested, at the um, 
Nova at 4.20, an important film, Law of the Land. If you want to know the difference between uh, uh, Indigenous law and how it butts up against uh, white law, uh, that is the film to see. It's at the Nova. It's part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, 4.20. Uh, We're going to go out, hopefully, with... Oh, yeah, this is great. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.